to be with you today. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 2. And let us give our reverent attention to this God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. So I've done a few road trips in my life. Perhaps you took a road trip to get here. Have you ever done a road trip through uh, Missouri, you come to what is perhaps the most iconic uh, arch. Uh, in fact, it's the largest arch in the world, the Gateway Arch. Another name for it is the Gateway to the West. So you're driving from east to west, and this arch essentially signals to you, welcome to the West. And it turns out there's a lot more West than there is uh, East. Well, there's an arch or a gateway to the uh, Psalter, and it's Psalms 1 and 2. If you uh, notice that Psalm 3 begins, a psalm of David, but there is no title to uh, these psalms, we can take it really that this is the entryway into the whole book of the psalms. And if you want to think about entry into the Psalter, the best door to take is the front door. Uh, not a side window or through the garage, the front door of the Psalter in these first uh, two psalms. Psalm 1, about the life-giving power of the Word of God. Psalm 2, about the eternal life found in the anointed of God. And the Word of God and the anointed of God belong together. In fact, I think there's a good case to be made for the fact that The man of Psalm 1 is actually the king of Psalm 2, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you read Deuteronomy 17, and the idea that the king is to meditate and even copy for himself uh, the book of the law so as to absorb uh, the word of God, and so that as he reigns, his reign will be conducted in accordance with God's word. But this morning, our focus is Psalm 2. And you'll notice in your Bibles that this psalm is divided into four uh, sections. The spacing in our translations makes it very uh, helpful uh, here. Four sections, 
speeches, words of four different parties. The first in verses 1 through 3 is about the warring words of the enemies of God. The second is the words of God in his laughter from heaven in verses 4 through 6. Then, in verses 7 through 9, we find the voice of the Messiah, the king who has been exalted by God. And then finally, the words of the psalmist himself, in verses 10 through 12, with a closing exhortation, now therefore. So four headings uh, today. Firstly, warring words. Secondly, the laughter of God. Thirdly, the king's speech. And finally, the call to wisdom. Firstly, then, warring words. The psalmist begins with the reality that he sees in his day, and in fact, we continue to see in our day as well, the wicked who are unhinged, apoplectic rage that spills over even into violence. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. Why? This is a why of bafflement. The psalmist asks this because he is, in one sense, totally bewildered by the activity of the idolatrous nations that have made war against God and his reign. Why? It's like your parents, when you were a little child, asked, why did you do that? It makes no sense. Have you thought about the rationale? Why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We could say that what he is witnessing is pure insanity, vanity. They plot in vain. Their efforts will by no means be successful. It's like the question that Jesus asked Saul of Tarsus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard to kick against the goads. When the ox is uh, plowing and it's kicking against that spiky board behind him, there's no productivity or fruitfulness that comes from kicking against the goads. And that's really the summary of verse 1 here. Why would the nations seek to plot against the eternal kingdom of God? It would be like a seven-year-old boy taking his Nerf gun and going to Fort Knox and thinking he's going to take over the place. I'm going to hatch a plan, break in and steal all the gold that is here. Sorry, boys, you'll barely make it even to the perimeter before you're found out. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together? Interestingly, this term take counsel is really the same it's the same word as meditate in uh, Psalm 1 whereas the man the righteous man meditates on God's law day and night 
It, it is his habitual pattern to think on, ponder on the word of God. In contrast, these other kings, these kings of the nations, have a different kind of meditation. And that is to shirk off the yoke of God's word. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords for us. There's really a counter-church dynamic at work here in these first three verses. Notice what they're doing. They're doing this together. They're congregating in a way that with one purpose and with one mind, they are assaulting or seeking to assault God's throne. We might call this the words, the warring words of the Antichrist. You'll observe in verse 1 the rage. If you look down at your uh, footnotes uh, there, it uh, might note for you that this is a noisy assembly uh, together. And then in verse 2, rulers take counsel together. What's the operative word? Against. Against the Lord, verse 2. Against the Lord and his anointed. If you look over at Psalm 46, this exact same term uh, is used. And we could say that there is a building on uh, Psalms 1 and 2 and the rest of the Psalter. And with Psalm 46, the uh, great vision of the Zion at peace, the Zion at rest, verse 5, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And then at the end of that psalm, Psalm 46, it speaks of uh, the nations uh, beating their war drums, bringing their chariots and horses to the battlefield, stringing their bows and uh, so forth. The voice of the nations, the voice of the unbelieving, wise and lofty of the earth, they say essentially one thing. We will not be ruled by God's word or God's anointed. Let's yank these cords from us and pull off this straitjacket. So back to Psalm uh, 2. You know, the believer has a very different response to God's word and to living under God's anointed. Whereas those who are blind, those in the dark, think of God's word as bonds and cords that are constraining and even suffocating, we know, according to 1 John, that God's commandments are not burdensome. We know from Matthew chapter 11 that the yoke 
of Christ, his burden is light. And so there is a sense of liberation that we ought to have as those in the kingdom relative to God's word. It's not something that is oppressive. It's not something that weighs us down. But it is something that is part of our liberty. Enlarge my heart. Let me run freely in the way of your commandments, the psalmist says in Psalm 119. But you know what? We should not be surprised or taken aback when we encounter such militant and even religious opposition and energy directed at the worship of God, at the worshipers of God. The weapons of assault will be directed at the church. That's how Psalm 2 is taken in Acts chapter 4, where after they've been arrested for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles gather for one of the first prayer meetings of the church. And what do they do? We find them praying Psalm 2. They pray Psalm 2, and they connect the dots to their own experience. We live, they're saying, in a Psalm 2 world. The coordinated effort of Herod and Pilate, what is that? It is what Psalm 2 tells us, the nations raging and the kings of the earth setting themselves and taking counsel together against the Lord and the anointed. Then they relate it to the opposition of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees in the temple, wanting to muzzle them in the proclamation of Christ. And they recognized that as they prayed in the midst of the hostility, that they took up this psalm in a desire to be assured from the Lord that their ministry would nonetheless continue to be blessed by God in the midst of opposition, in the midst of affliction. And so Psalm 2 continues to be a psalm for the church. We hear about a table prepared in the midst of our enemies, Psalm 23, but there's also a song to be sung in the midst of our enemies. The warfare between these kings of the earth, the nations, and God's anointed and God's kingdom, it will not cease until the last day. And so if we are wise, we'll take up these psalms as part of our arsenal in fighting spiritual warfare. Well, there's the warring words, but secondly, the laughter of God. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now notice, God does not even have to get up from his throne to take action. He does not view 
the nations and their conspiracies, the nations and their plots as in any way a threat to his sovereignty and his rule. He sits and he laughs. One Puritan forefather writes, he sits there as one easy and at rest, out of reach of all their impotent menaces and attempts. There he sits as judge in all the affairs of the children of men, perfectly secure of the full accomplishment of all his own purposes and designs, in spite of all opposition. He who sits. It's important for us as the people of God to remember the seated one and the one who will not be unseated. There is no usurping. There is no recall. There is no coup. He who sits will continue to sit in heaven. And for us as believers, this should bring us comfort to say, don't be agitated. Don't grow unsettled or alarmed. Don't buy into the hype of the world's power. You turn off the fog machine, the strobe lights, the laser show, what's left? Precious little, and certainly not enough to bowl you over. Do you think that God looks upon the ideologies and all the arsenal of the world and says, oh no, I might have to consult a backup plan or pull out an emergency meeting. No, God is not vexed. He is not in any way upset by the conniving and rabble-rousing that is taking place among his adversaries. Psalm 93 says he sits above the floodwaters, those chaotic, uh, convulsing, dark waters. And the waves of violence do not even come close to reaching his feet. What is the activity of God? He laughs. He laughs. Now this is no laughter of humor, and I'm fairly sure if we are granted access into heaven to even hear a bit of the sound of this laughter, it would strike abject terror within us. Woe is me. Just the other day, there was quite the storm, as we have seen the effects of in this area. And we were sitting in class, and a huge sound of thunder sounded right above us. Think about the loudest thunder you ever heard. Multiply that by 10,000 or more, and that would be the sound of the judgment laughter of God against his enemies. The Lord holds them in derision. In Isaiah 37, 
when Sennacherib comes to siege Jerusalem, he brings a taunt with him as he comes against the city. And it's a taunt that reminds us of Psalm 2. Sennacherib said, I've burned a path of destruction all the way from Assyria now into Judah, and no one has stood in my way, and no one has been able to stop me. Then after Hezekiah prays to God, the Lord responds to the king of Assyria through Isaiah the prophet. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem below, in Isaiah chapter 37, is able to participate in the laughter of Jerusalem above, where God is seated. To put it another way, because God laughs, Psalm 2, verse 4, the church, which is in God, in the Lord, as our refuge and fortress, we are, in a sense, able to echo that laughter in response to the enemies of the Lord. The Lord then tells Sennacherib, Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I'll turn you back on the way you came. The wild colt of Assyria is going to be tamed by the strength of the Lord Another passage we can think about is Acts chapter 12. On the day circled on the calendar, King Herod appears before them. Now, this is a different Herod than the one we encounter in the Gospels, but nonetheless, a ruler who has set himself against the Lord and his anointed. And what does he do? He comes to his assembly to his courts, and he struts his stuff. The historian Josephus describes it in his own account. Herod, clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. I once uh, worked for this seamstress who had sewn this really uh, elaborate garment for a rock star. And it was uh, made up of hundreds of little mirrors that when he wore and the lights shone on him, it would be truly bright and resplendent. That's the picture we are given in Acts 12 when Herod appears before his audience. And he makes this oration to those present. Now, we're not told what the oration was, but we can only imagine 
it was full of Herod's own self-absorption and narcissism. Look at what I have done. Look at my prestige. Look at the portion of the Roman Empire that I am in charge of. And what do his subjects exclaim as he speaks? They say, the voice of a god and not of a man. The voice of a god, not of a man. And there is Herod basking in it. I can't hear you. Say it louder. What takes place on that very day? The text tells us that worms strike him and he dies. Isaiah chapter 14, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. A gruesome, horrific demise, shutting the mouths of all those around who saw it. God will lay low the proud, the one who exalts himself, the one who is full of self-aggrandizement and aims at apotheosis, self-divinization. God laughs and God acts, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has taken a decisive action which renders the reaction of his enemies truly laughable. And what is that? It is choosing his king, his Messiah, his servant, and installing him on the throne. Now, the initial reference to Psalm 2 refers to David, for David is the king who is placed on Zion. Psalm 89 tells us, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also will strengthen him. But in an ultimate and prophetic sense, we know that Psalm 2 must be not about David, but about David's heir, about the one with whom God makes a covenant, that one of his sons will sit on the throne, and not simply sit on the throne, but sit on it forever. That's why when Psalm 2 is quoted in both Acts 13 and Hebrews 1, it takes it as referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The action of verses 5 and 6 is fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. He is the one with the power of an indestructible life. Christ is the one whose throne will endure. Revelation 5, And I heard 
every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Who has done this? Not Israel, not the people. God has. I have set my king on Zion. You know, it seems that democracy is very precarious. All these millions of votes in every state that need to be counted, great concern for accurate counting of votes and so forth. You factor in all the delivery times and postmarks, your head starts spinning. But when it comes to the choosing of God's king, it's not vox populi that speaks, the voice of the people. The decision is God's alone. And so for us, the church, really, we can hang our hat on this, we can build our house on this, that the election that really matters has already taken place. The election of the Lord, of King Jesus, to his heavenly throne. As another psalm puts it, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Little did the Jews, represented by Herod, and the Gentiles, represented by Pilate, know that the stone they threw on the rubbish heap would be the very stone that is set in place as the foundation of a new temple of a new kingdom. This means that our faith should have a security, a stability that is never going to be found if you put your trust in princes, in those in whom is but a breath. And so let's not pin our hopes or dreams on earthly outcomes of nations and kingdoms. That would be like trying to plant our flag at the edge of a cliff that in a few years will be eroded away. Instead, build your house upon the rock, upon Zion, where God has established his chosen king. We find the warring words, the laughter of God, and thirdly, the king's speech. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus, who is always God's son by nature, enters into a new phase of his sonship in his glorification. Romans 1 tells us that he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What does it mean to be a son? 
fundamentally, it means to be an heir. And that's one of the important things about this particular expression here in verse 8. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Son seeks for this inheritance. And as he's given the Holy Spirit, as we learn in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, that Spirit is going to be poured out on all nations. Why? Because all nations belong to this King, to this Son. David ruled over the tribes of Jacob. But the prophet tells us, for this servant, this anointed, it's going to be too light a thing for him to rule over the tribes of Jacob. He's going to make him a light for the nations that his salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. And this prepares us for a very important theme in the Psalms, if you read them carefully, there will be an expanding, uh, a stretching of the tent pegs of the recognition of the glory of God, not only for the sons of Jacob, but also those on the seas, those in the islands, those in the coastlands. They, too, will see the saving power of the Lord. That's why the great missionary psalm of Psalm 67 is really a proof of this reality when the psalmist says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has purified the lips of all nations, of all tribes and peoples of the earth, that we might praise him and serve him. Bob Dylan has that well-known song, The Times, They Are A-Changin'. In this event of verse 7, time itself is reset by the ascension of Christ. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Talk about a watershed event. Y'all know what a watershed is, a mountain or a range of mountains that separates the flow of rivers. And once the river is flowing in a certain direction, it's not going to jump back over the mountain and go in the opposite direction. And so when we talk about a watershed event in history, it means that an event by which nothing will remain the same. The ascension is such a time, a definitive time of transformation and change. As we read in the prophets, every mountain will be made low, flattened like a pancake. Every valley raised up wide. Because of God who comes and the good news announced that he reigns. 
and he rules. But there's a warning also, and it's important that we not pass over it. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is coming a day when, as the walls of Jericho came crashing down, so all the walls of unbelief and resistance to God will be shattered and will be brought to utter desolation. The king and judge of all will come on a white horse. Revelation 19 tells us he is followed by the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. And the rider has in his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There is a call of warning in this psalm. Flee from the wrath to come, for it is coming. Be sure of it. Psalm 1 concludes, the way of the wicked will perish. The gospel is not that there is no wrath of God, but that Christ has delivered us from the wrath to come. How are we saved from the wrath of the king? By bowing in obeisance and faith to this king, the king who calls us to lay hold of his scepter of mercy before that final sword of judgment is unsheathed. There are the warring words, there's the laughter of God, there's the king's speech, but finally, the call to wisdom, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore. We're used to reading now, therefore, in Paul's letters, but here it is in the Psalms. We could say the indicative of the first part of the psalm, and now the imperative of the last part. Given the reality of God's exalted king, given the reality of the king's ownership, possession of the nations, given the reality of the approaching day of judgment, what shall we do? Here's the answer. Be wise, verse 10, and be warned. Be wise and be warned. In other words, don't be the foolish one who closes his ear to the word of God. Don't be the stupid one who closes your eyes to him who was and is and is to come. Open your ears and not only hear, but heed what the psalm is telling us. What kind of wisdom is revealed for us in the word? The kind of wisdom that clears out all the wise and learned of this age and the rulers of this age. As we read in 1 Corinthians 
where God, in the preaching of the cross, in the way of the cross, overturns the wisdom of the wise and makes foolish the wisdom of this world. One time I witnessed a debate in England, and at the end of the evening, you would walk out the door, yes or no, depending on what side you believe won the debate. Yes door, if you vote with the one making the case, arguing for the proposition. The no door, if you believe he has lost. We could say that once the gospel is proclaimed, the wise in their own eyes, the scholars, the debaters of this world, have walked out the no door because they will not heed, they will not listen. But for the meek, for the lowly, for those who recognize their sin, they find in this a wisdom unlike any other. How to be wise, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Does that remind you of a New Testament passage? Paul might echo this in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Given the fact that Jesus has been given the name above every name. In the coronation day service of the monarch in England, the archbishop has the earl or baron take a vow. I do become your liege man of life and limb and of earthly service. And faith and truth will I bear unto you to live and die against all manner of folks. All the lords, all the kings of the earth called to yield and to submit to the king of kings and lord of lords. The king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kissing the son. Come to him who has first loved you. Come to him who has established his kingship, not through chariots and horses, not through swords and spears, but through the cross. That is where Jesus proves that he is the king of the Lord, the son of David. Kiss the son who has redeemed you, given you the gift of eternal life. And when you find him a refuge now, on the last day, he will be to you that rock of ages. Let us find ourselves in him. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for the blessing that you have promised for us as we take refuge in your son. We pray that you would continue to give that meekness and reverence without which no one can understand and obey your word. 
Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us the peace and joy of following you and of being subjects in your kingdom. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. stand together. <clears throat> wow. 